0: So I am very happy to open up God's Word with you today. We're in Hebrew, in, in, whew, Hebrews, Habakkuk chapter 3. I know where we're at. I've been studying all week. Very happy to open up the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God, not only to read it, but to preach it as well. Today is Palm Sunday. It's Easter week, and it's week four of our five-week series, verse-by-verse, expositionally through Habakkuk. Habakkuk tells us that God is sovereign both in judgment and in mercy. And no matter what, we can trust God who is merciful. I want to remind you before I read God's word this morning that God speaks to us in his word. And he wants to speak to you this morning. And that it's not just, what we read is not just about who he is eternally or what he did in history, but what he wants to do in and through us for his glory. And we need to keep that in mind. I, I want to remi- remind you that uh, you know, we're reading a book that was basically around 600 B.C. You know, and we're going to say some things about Jesus at the cross and first century stuff. But we're in 2017. And I don't want you to think that, wow, this is just really, really old stuff that doesn't really apply to today. This will make a difference in your life today. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the same mercy with which he did wonders in, in history and through Jesus at the cross is the same uh, mercy that if you're a believer, he's, he's applying into your relationship with him today. If you're not a believer, then that's the same mercy God wants to really stream into your soul today if you turn from your sins and trust Christ so let's open up our Bibles uh, to Habakkuk chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one close by you, and you can have it as our gift to you. It's blue. If you find a really, really nice one that's like calfskin leather and stuff with no name, you can have that one too, okay? So uh, if you're able, please stand with me to read God's Word. That's what we do here at Grace out of, to honor God and His Word and remind ourselves That uh, this is the word of God. So I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigiana. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high, the sun and the moon stood still in their place, as the light of your arrows as they sped, the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken, and thank you for your word. Thank you that you are merciful. Lord, today how we need your mercy. I pray, Lord, that you have your way in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. God remembers his mercy so that we who tend to forget so easily would be continually reminded to recount his mercies and to rely upon him. We are in Habakkuk and we're in week four of five and um, if you're new to grace or if you've forgotten, let me tell you where we've been so far. First, what happened is Habakkuk cries out to God over the sins of his people and he thinks that God isn't doing enough to discipline them. It's kind of like when When you were a kid and you're like, uh, my parents aren't disciplining my younger brothers and sisters as much as they did me. You know, they're not doing enough here. So God says, look, I've got a plan to restore righteousness by having the wicked Chaldeans invade you guys. And they're going to discipline you. And this is how I'm going to discipline you. So the next thing you see is Habakkuk saying, whoa, whoa, time out, God. You're, You're going too far now. Now you're doing too much. I thought you were doing not enough. Now you're going to do too much. I can't grasp how you're going to use a, a more wicked nation than us to discipline us. And then last week we saw that God assured Habakkuk that the invaders would answer for their sins as well. They weren't getting off the hook. The proud would ultimately be mocked. And now today in chapter 3 we see Habakkuk, get this, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not joking here, Singing. Okay, so he's been crying out to God and now he's singing. This is a prayer, a a song of praise processing deep faith in the the midst of deep anguish. You may have prayed like that this week. When you and I cry out to God in the midst of deep physical or emotional or relational pain and you just say, God, I, I I need you to do something here because this is just messed up. In light of God's just wrath, Habakkuk is asking God for mercy. There are even notes of repentance as he remembers who God is. It ought to be very encouraging and instructive for us today as we go through this. Remember, we are in the book of Habakkuk, which is one of the minor prophets. If you're new to the Bible, don't worry. Everyone had to bookmark it. No one knew where it was. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It's kind of like the middle child of the minor prophets. There are 17 Old Testament prophetic books, five major, they're big books, they're long books, they're bigger in in scope and length, and there are 12 minor prophetic books. They are smaller books. Habakkuk is one of them. And if you boil down out of the 12 minor prophets, if you go through each one of them, and I've been doing this recently, go into each one of them, and you see common themes all the way through, and here's how I boil down what the minor prophets were about. The message, the overriding theme or idea they give. It's simple. You don't even have to write it down. Man is sinful and hates, but God is gracious and loves. He shows mercy to those who repent. Now Habakkuk was told in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. We got this invasion coming upon you. You're going to have to live by faith. You're going to need to trust me, God says. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, this this, um, beautiful line in in wrath, remember mercy. In Wrath, remember mercy. Now, this is going on around 610 B.C. It's a transitional period in the history of of, of God's people. It was between Josiah, who was a great king, really almost like a second Moses, and, and Jehoiakim. Now, what was going on in jo- Josiah's reign is that he brought about a lot of reforms. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know he did a lot of good things. The problem was the reforms that Josiah brought in weren't good enough to stop God's wrath. They went off. They had already gone off the rails. Okay, uh, they had really, pretty much, were going over a cliff. And Josiah's like driving the bus, and he's like, "We can save this," and he's like swerving before they go off. The cliff. The problem was the guardrail had been taken down in Ahab's reign. There was no guardrail. And Josiah tried, it was valiant. But all that came about was a temporary delay in God's judgment. What happened was there was no heart change in the people. I think we can all relate to this. Um, they didn't believe in God, depravity had broken out big time, there had been a moral shift outwardly. They were just tacking on looking good. I think we can all relate with that. But there was unrestrained evil going on. This was five years before the first deportation. Habakkuk is going to graduate to Babylon. But he's godly. And so he says, so now what do we do? This is our situation. What do we do? It was a dark period in in their history. Uh, He is one of the faithful in the midst of God's judgment. So he's having conversations with God. He's talking with God. Uh, Like I said before, this is the prayer journal of a burdened man. Total perversion of Israelite society, no justice, and he's crying out to God, and he realizes God's ways are misunderstood often, and they are mysterious. They're hard to figure out, and they are magnificent. God's ways are, are beautiful. And he realizes that God is going to act, as God tells him he's going to act, and there's going to be an exile to Babylon. They're going back to the evil land. Where was Abraham from? Or of the Chaldeans. And the wicked Chaldeans loved violence. They were an army of serial killers, assassins, who worshipped themselves. And Habakkuk now must hide himself in the character of God, in light of this coming invasion, because faithful people trust God. God carries the faithful by grace through faith. So when you're going through tough times, you've got to understand and accept what you know about God already from the word of God. It will get you through. So what what the context is, is God's just wrath against the ungodly is going to happen. But what you see, and this is the beauty of it, God's justice is paving the way for mercy. Mercy. And mercy's beautiful. This is is God remembering his mercy. This is Habakkuk asking God to remember his mercy. Now, the first thing you see happen in in this prayer, in this this song of praise, is that Habakkuk requests God's mercy. Verses 1 and 2. In view of Judah's judgment, he pleads for mercy. He's asking God for mercy in the midst of his wrath against sin. So verse 1 begins a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. This is a transition now. There's the questions of chapters one and two, where he's crying out for God's intervention, and he's questioning God. Now this is giving way to what I would call um, praise laced with naked honesty. In chapter three, another problem emerges. This guy's got problems. We can relate, right? His problem this time is fear. Fear. Abject fear. Now, he had already been daring enough to ask God very blunt questions. Hey, God, if you're completely good and powerful, how come you're using evil to carry out your judgments? Now he's burying his soul before God. And he's just saying, look, um, I know I'm assured of your ultimate lordship, God, and I know you're just in punishing uh, all violators of your holy law, but I am in dread of the coming invasion." He's afraid of it. Now wouldn't you be? Go down to verse 16. Habakkuk describes his fear. My heart is pounding. My lips are quivering. Uh, th- there's decay in my bones like I'm just I'm 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 weary, I'm aching, and my legs are trembling. This is a description of intense fear. But he's honest enough with God to say, God, this is how I feel. You can be honest with God in your prayers. God, this is how I feel about this coming invasion. All the while, I'm trusting you. Now, David, just take a couple examples here. David, King David, was a man of strength, a man of faith. And he, you know, in in the Psalms, speaking of his fears as he's facing his enemies, Paul, the Apostle Paul, man of courage, a man of faith, And he, 2 Corinthians 1.8, despaired even of life itself. But you deal with fear by acting in faith. Now, what's the world's way of dealing with fear? We sometimes do this, right? Um, Well, you can just give in to it. Well, I'm really afraid, okay? Or you can pretend it doesn't exist. Or try to act brave, you know, fake it till you make it. I'm going to pretend like I'm brave. This was like me in high school when I, when I went to scary movies with my friends. <laughs> okay? I did not want to go to those. They scared me. But I'm not going to tell my buddies. So I go and then have nightmares for years. <laughs> Gotten over it. It's, it's, I've worked through it and all that. But the Christian way to deal with fear is to walk by faith in the God who's revealed himself in the word of God. In his own word. So here's Habakkuk grappling, you know, feverishly, fervently with God to gain a perspective on his work and his ways. That's what he's doing. And he voices an all-out confidence in God. This prayer, this this song of praise has all-out confidence in God written all over it. And the impact of the word of God. Remember, the spirit of God is giving Habakkuk these words to pray, sing, okay? So the effect of the word of God upon Habakkuk's heart is is, um, is just huge. Now, I want you to see a little phrase in verse 1 that you could just pass on by and say that's just a word that's hard to say. According to Shigianot, what's that? Is that like, does he have a disease? What's going on? Um, the meaning of the word is unsure. You can look all over the place and people have all sorts of ideas about it. But it describes the kind of music that this is said to. This was to be sung People were to sing this song. So he's praying it, and they're supposed to sing it in the future. So the meaning is unsure, but it describes music that accompanies the prayer in temple worship, and it is fervent music. It is music that is um, just packed with feeling and emotion and excitement. This is not background music. This is not elevated music, mood music, okay? This is, this is wild, uneven, vibrant Music that is stirred by feeling. And it spotlights God who is all-sufficient. It spotlights God's greatness. So picture a song that has some crazy tune and some wild, every time you see, by the way, in the Psalms and here, because this is a psalm, you see the word selah off to the side there in your Bible? That is a pause or a musical crescendo, okay? So this is not, you know, just a little tune that he's like, well, we gotta put it to music, let's let's figure something out. This is is in response to fear of coming invaders, and he sings and he prays a spirit-inspired song uh, exuberantly. He's, He's praying and singing this song with excited confidence in God. Does that make sense, okay? It's meant to be sung. So he he just dives in. Verse verse 2, here's the first words of this song. O Lord, so he's addressing God. I have heard the report of you. I've literally heard your words and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Now, chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, God said, here's what I'm going to do to judge my people. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, here's what I'm going to do to judge the people that, that mess with my people. Okay, the Chaldeans. Now, Habakkuk is saying, revive your work. I'm struck with fear by your work, but please, please, Lord, repeat your saving works on behalf of your people. Please do it, Lord. I know you've done it so many times before. In the midst of years, in the midst of punishment, he's begging for mercy. Look at the end of verse two. In wrath, remember mercy. He knows God is infinite in mercy. He knows that God grants life to all those who trust in him and his provision for the salvation of sinners. Now, it would be really easy to say, well, let's go on to the next verse because we know what mercy is. But well, let's talk about it. What is mercy? What's mercy? Mercy is compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one who is subject to another's power where they get leniency or compassionate treatment. Now, the name of our church is Grace Church. I love the name of Grace Church. One time we were on vacation uh, and our family was uh, up in San Luis Obispo and we had been camping or something and on a Saturday morning we're driving on to like Morro Bay or somewhere like that and basically we went over this little hill and we came down and we saw this park and there was a carnival going on and this one church called Mercy Church was putting on a neighborhood party, like a little outreach thing. So, hey, we were part of the neighborhood right then, so we, uh, we got some pony rides, what have you, and some free food and what have you. Um, but I, I, it struck me. I never forget it. I know, I'll never forget it. I thought to myself, why aren't more churches called Mercy Church? And I think I know why. We kind of feel like we have a handle on what grace is, but we're like, yeah, mercy, um, yeah, whatever. And plus, I don't really want to do that. I really don't want to be merciful. You see, I, I want mercy, but, you know, for you, you kind of deserve it. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying. What is God's mercy? Spiros Zodiatus, in his uh, keyword study Bible, and does a lot of Greek and Hebrew words, he, here's what he said. Mercy, now this is the New Testament word is Elias, mercy, is the special and immediate regard to the misery, which is the consequence of sins. Think about it. Sin brings misery. Mercy is where there's special and immediate regard to that misery. Now, this is in contrast to grace, Greek word charis, which is God's free gift displayed in the forgiveness of sins as extended to people in their guilt. God's mercy, though, is extended to alleviate the consequences of sin. It's like this. God's mercy is his benevolent pity toward you for the misery that was brought on by your sin. It's his pitying love. In grace, he gives you what you don't deserve. But mercy holds back what your sins do deserve. It's a mind-blowing concept. And I think it would be really easy to think of mercy as something that God applies to you kind of once, like a one-time shot, one-time lifetime inoculation. You know, boom. When you're a kid, you get it back here, right? Now you get it here, right? Give me a shot right in my arm. Just give me that one-time shot, and I'm good. It's not the way it goes. Here's how it goes. Mercy, and you'll notice in the Bible, if you look up the word, mercy is, all, is often um, in the plural. Mercies. Okay, I'll give you an example. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Here's the Apostle Paul who's taken 11 chapters to lay out the beauty of the doctrines of God's grace, all the teachings of God's grace, in Christ, and how the righteous should live by faith, and how, how, the, uh, how, how God's righteousness is revealed, and, and how the, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, and, and all these things, and he builds up, and he gets to chapter 12, and he's like, now based on all this, here's how you should live, and here's how it goes, Romans 12 too. I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God, And what he's saying is, you can't do any of this if it were not for God's mercy that keeps on being streamed out on you and showered out on you in Christ. He's writing to believers. Now, when hard times come upon us, we want it to be taken away right away, right? We want the misery to vanish. We want to be at peace, but we know we need God to intervene. And so, think about it. You ask around, and you ask one of your fellow humans for mercy, you may or may not get it, but you might not. Um, There's only one who is truly merciful. He is righteous in all his ways, he is kind in all his deeds. He pours out pluralities of mercy upon your needy soul. Now let me illustrate this with an old hymn, beautiful hymn, come thou fount of every blessing. Here's how it goes. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Next line, Streams of mercy never ceasing. Streams of mercy never ceasing. So the, the hymn is using a water analogy of a stream or a river. Have you ever noticed how, not in the drought times, but just in normal times, in other states, you see a stream, you see a river, and you're like, wow, it just keeps on going. I'm standing right here, and the water keeps going, and there's more water. It's like, where's it coming from? Just more and more water. Gallons of, gallons of water rushing past, which is a very fitting picture of God's mercy. So, streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. So, God's mercy, which is, which is in magnitude very plentiful, merits maximum praise because of its magnitude, because there's so much of it. Does that make sense? The Lord's loving kindnesses, as Lamentations 3 says, indeed never cease. His mercies are new every morning. So he's requesting mercy here. He's asking God for mercy, and that's what we should do. We need to praise God when times seem bleak and, and pour out your heart to God humbly. And then boldly pray without reservation or fear. If you're a believer, you can do this. Now let's see what else the the Spirit of God moves him to do. He keeps going. Now verses three through fifteen, what you're going to see is that after Habakkuk requests mercy, the Spirit moves him on to now recount God's mercies. He's literally going to rehearse to God, reminding God and himself, God, you are so merciful. Your works are so wondrous. And and so what happens is, as you're thinking about the mercy of God, you are basically led to magnify God's majesty and his his might, his strength, his greatness. So what you've got in verses 3 through 15 are stories of God's past intervention on his people's behalf. And they're taken from the deliverance of his people from Egypt and, and the conquest of Canaan primarily. So Habakkuk is painting a picture here of God's previous deliverance that sets the stage for the fact that, well, God is always merciful. He is going to deliver his people in the future, okay? So verse 3, look at verse 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So Mount Paran is on the Sinai Peninsula, and it, it's, these are places that God displayed his, his power, bringing Israel to. Into the land of Canaan. Uh, His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. Uh, They're loving it. Verse 4. His brightness was like the light. What's that? This This is the glory of God. This is the Shekinah glory of God. That protected and led Israel from Egypt through the wilderness. It was the physical manifestation of God's presence. Like the sun, his, his radiance is seen through the heavens and the earth. And it even says that rays flashed from his hand. Now, this can be translated two ways. The horns of a gazelle can be, can be uh, flashing from his hand or rays of light. Now, remember, this is poetry. This is, this is a psalm. This is a song. And so the horns of a gazelle, the rays of light are, are flashing from God's hand. Kind of like how it says a fiery law came out of his right hand. This is a, um, a theophany. This is, this is God. This is the glory uh, of, of the light um, from, from actually from Moses when he came down the mountain from Sinai and, and with God's law, where he, he, there, he had to veil his face. This is where it says, there he veiled his power. Uh, Deuteronomy 33, they're coming down off of Sinai, or Exodus 34. Moses' face shone. And they couldn't look at him. They were going to get blinded by it because he was reflecting God's glory, God's brilliance. And I think if if you have an appreciation for the mercy of God, it is going to lead you uh, to just focus on uh, how great he is, how how majestic he is. You you put a spotlight on the greatness of God. Majesty is a a word the Bible uses to express God's greatness. Psalm 93, verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Majesty. Psalm 145, verse 5, I will speak of the glorious honor of your majesty and of your wondrous works. You got Peter. He was remembering being on the Mount of Transfiguration and so 2 Peter 1.16, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, In Hebrews, majesty is used twice for God. Uh, Christ at his ascension, uh, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3 and on the right hand of the majesty of heaven, Hebrews 8.1. So the majesty of God is, is, is really being played up here. Look at verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague. Uh, this is remembering God's judgments uh, on Israel's disobedience to the covenant at Sinai. The sovereignty of God in, in judging his people. Verse 6, he measured the earth. This is a a great contrast you see here. He measured the earth, he shook the nations. The eternal, here's this word, eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. You look at the mountains and you think, wow, they're just going to last forever. Not so. They're not going to last forever. So, So his were the everlasting ways. Here's the contrast. The hills and the mountains that seem everlasting are not, but the ways of God are everlasting. See the contrast there? Okay. Verse 7, tents of Cushan and affliction, curtains of Midian tremble. The idea is the, the, the whole world, the whole universe is trembling at God coming at them. Uh, like the creation, the heavens and the earth are, are and, and its inhabitants, uh, the, 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 the inhabitants of earth are at God's disposal. Now what, what, what Habakkuk does next, verses 8 through 15, is now he starts speaking not just about God, but to God directly. And he recounts God's actions um, against anything opposed to his will. Verse 8, What well, is your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea, your horses, your chariots. This is God defeating the enemy. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, you called for many arrows. Your, your, the arrows were sent from God. And the mountains, verse 10, saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. Uh, verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still. Symbols of God's created order, the sun and the moon, and, and they, they serve his purposes. It you know, looks to Joshua chapter 10, Israel's victory over the Amorites at Gibeon, uh, where the sun stood still. And, and uh, verse 12, you marched the earth in fury, you threshed the nations. Now, word threshed is a big word. It's often used to de- depict military uh, invasions and the execution of judgment. God is threshing the nations And Habakkuk is just remembering all this stuff, and he's like, okay, we're not going to die. We're going to live because God is faithful to his covenant. He is mighty. He is ready to defend his people. He's ready to save. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. Right there in the immediate context, he's, he's talking about Moses and the people of Israel. God's anointed, achieving victory over Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt but it foreshadows the future deliverance of the Messiah through the Messiah promised in the Davidic covenant. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So if you get like laid bare from thigh to neck, uh, you, know, you get cut open from thigh, you're dying. You're going to die from this wound. Okay? It's a mortal wound. And, and what, what he's referring to is Pharaoh, whose firstborn was slain, could also be referring to the king of the Chaldeans who built his house house on bloodshed, unjust gain, but he could also be referring to the ultimate, the Holy Spirit might be also referring to the ultimate defeat of Satan promised in Genesis 3.15 where where, uh, Christ would bruise or crush the head of Satan, crush the head of the house of the wicked. Verse 14, you, you pierced with your, his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. This is the, the army of, of Pharaoh chasing Israel down to the Red Sea. And they just thought, wow, this is going to be an easy one. We're going to just mow them down. And so rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, they seemed like easy prey to the Egyptians. But verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses. God delivered Israel at the Red Sea. And he's reminding God, you did this, God. You are merciful. You saved us. You delivered us. You, you rule over the universe sovereignly. You can be counted on to save your people. He's, he's saying, God, you're so majestic in holiness. God, you're so awesome in might and power. You're so mercifully good. I'm going to praise you for all that. And this is what happens. He appreciates the mercy of God. He, he magnifies God's greatness, and he recounts to God. He's reminding himself of the merciful acts of God in the past. It's helping him get through the present. This is how you should get through the present. You have your tough times right now. Well, remember what God did. What did God do in your life in the past? How has he shown himself faithful? And what does he promised to do in the future? Lamentations 3.23, again, he says, your, your mercies are new every morning. They are new every morning. There, there's a constant supply of God's mercy for for those who are in Christ. Uh, Just for a moment, think with me about a person who is just overwhelmingly anxious about everything. That might be you even. And and let's say you're living this way. I am so anxious about everything, I need more to-do lists because I need to work harder. That's That's not the road you should take. What you need to do is go to a big, merciful God who who is to be trusted, and who provides new mercies every day. New power, new ability, new enabling, new strength, new comfort. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, He is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. He doesn't comfort you in just one affliction, but every one of your afflictions. Every time you're afflicted, new mercies sweet comfort in a time of pain. Mercy extended to the needy. You could recount God's mercy. You could remind God of his merciful acts in the past to help you get through the present. And it will lead you to where the Spirit led Habakkuk. Look at verse 16 again. It's going to lead you to rely on God's mercy, to trust in God's mercy, to trust in God who is merciful. God's mercy enables those who receive mercy to trust him. Verse 16 again, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver, my bones are like rotten, my legs are trembling beneath me, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. See, the prophet could rest in the day of trouble because he knew God is good. The Christian response to fear is faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 10, we are not those who shrink back in fear, but are those who have faith to the preserving of the soul, relied upon mercy. And just like Habakkuk, we can do this. We can request mercy from God. We can recount his merciful deeds and we can rely on his mercy. And I think that takes some habits. I know you all have habits. We all have habits that that you didn't just get overnight. Your good habits or your bad habits, you got them over time. And so these need to be cultivated, but what kind of habits might God want us to cultivate? You know, what kind of holy habits of remembering might God want us to cultivate? Well, one would be a habit of requesting God's mercy as you come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and find help in time of need, grace to help in time of need. Or habits of recounting all the things that God has done in your life. And remembering that. Maybe you keep a journal and you look back and you, you see that. Or maybe you talk to someone and say, remember when God did this? And habits of relying daily on God's mercy, knowing that nothing good can or will happen unless God and until God does it. You're dependent on his mercy. God remembers his mercy that we who tend to forget would be continually reminded to recount his mercies and then trust in his mercies. Now, I'll remind you, too, that this, this, again, all this was was written and all this was going to be sung, like, in the 600 B.C.s, okay? Long, long time ago, right? Uh, This is 2017. So if if we're going to really get a grasp and a handle on on God's mercy, then we're going to have to dive deeper into the question of God's mercy. Because you can't stay a generalist as, as it pertains to God's mercy. Oh, God is so merciful. You have got to get very, very specific in 2017 about God's mercy. You know, in in, in 600 B.C., you could get away with going, you know, God, you're merciful. And someday you're going to send a deliverer, the Messiah. You can't get away with that in 2017. In 2017, you have to grasp God's mercy is very specific and it's extended in Christ's propitiatory sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God against our sin. Of all the things that God says about those who are not in Christ, I think maybe the scariest is that the unsaved are children of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. That all unregenerate human beings deserve God's condemnation. That people outside of Christ deserve nothing from the Father except His wrath and ultimate punishment eternally in hell. R.C. Sproul says one of the most important words in scripture is the word but. Go with me to Ephesians chapter two and look with me at verses four and five because it starts with the word but. It indicates a contrast. It indicates Paul was saying we were children of wrath Now, he says, and he's talking about Christians, now he says we are different after we put our faith in Christ. But God, being rich in what? What do you see there? Mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There's God's mercy, there's God's grace. See, God has not left humanity to thrash around in a miserable state but he chose to rescue some. It's another key word, some. Chosen from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, and he comes to his people, all born dead in Adam, unable to respond to him, and performs a spiritual regeneration so they desire to believe and be saved. John Calvin said it clearly, everything connected with our salvation ought to be ascribed to God as its author because God takes the initiative, the decisive step, but all whom he regenerates believe in the gospel and follow Jesus in humble, faithful discipleship. Not because, if you're a Christian today, it's not because of anything that was in you. Like God said, ooh, there's a keeper. We were dead in sin. We were undeserving of his love. Our false righteousness was filthy rags. And God acts on our behalf solely due to his love. But why does he not do this for everyone? Why does not everyone get this? It's a great mystery. But I guarantee you it's to the praise of his glorious grace Ephesians 1:6 according to his good purposes and pleasure. Mercy is unexpected love and generosity. It isn't something owed. He doesn't owe anyone mercy. You can't like, you know, pop out of the womb and get your belly button tied and grow up and say, "God, you owe me mercy." When you can talk, you know. You can't just say, God, uh, I, I demand the mercy that I'm supposed to get. Now you get in hell. <laughs> um, God is sovereign and independent and not obligated to save anybody. And your situation apart from Christ is utterly helpless, desperate. And he shows goodness and mercy towards sinners who deserve only condemnation. It's a mystery to us. Romans 9, if you want to look at verses 14 through 26 with me, those verses explain a lot. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Kind of sounds like Habakkuk. By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then Paul, and the Holy Spirit has Paul quote a a minor prophet, just like Hosea said. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. All by mercy. All by sovereign grace. I'm not saying this is easy to understand. I'm just saying it's biblical. It's true. We struggle with questions and quandaries about who God chooses to give mercy to. And and, and it's a fair question. Why does God assault our sensibilities this way? Why is it so incomprehensible? It's because it's otherworldly and God is holy and we are sinful And, and, and God assaults our sensibilities about what and whom gets mercy, who gets mercy. And the quality of God's mercy is such that when you believe yourself farthest from Him, He is most merciful toward you. James two thirteen says mercy triumphs over judgment. You might want to go to John eight. I'll just briefly review this story. But there's a story in John chapter eight verses one through eleven. It's a beautiful picture of mercy. There's a woman who is caught, a man and a woman caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says if you're caught in the act of adultery, you are to be killed. And they literally grab the woman, not the man, but the woman, and and shove her over to Jesus, push her over to Jesus, take her all the way to Jesus, dragging her all the way to Jesus, and then saying, what do you say? Should we put her to death? Now, forget about all the injustice of why the man wasn't getting uh, pushed before Jesus as well, but just think about what Jesus does. He bends down and writes in in the dust, and all sorts of people think they, they know what he was writing, but only he knows what he was writing Uh, That has not been revealed to us in Scripture. But then Jesus gets up and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And they all slink away. They're gone. And he says to the the woman, where'd they go? No one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And, And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now here's the quandary. This woman's guilt was real. She committed a crime and God, through Moses, commanded her death. And God the Son simply says, neither do I condemn you. Now how could he say this? If God violates his his own commandment, we have a huge problem, don't we? Is God unjust? Never. God fully intended for her sin to be punished to the full extent of the law. But she would not bear her punishment. She would go free because Jesus would be punished for her. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have each one turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus speaks life-altering words. Neither do I condemn you, because he was condemned in our place. So have you experienced God's mercy? Do you have a testimony of God's mercy in your life through Christ, through the propitiatory sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement of Christ? I grew up with a pull-myself-up-by-my-bootstraps mentality. Um, I thought I was better than everybody else, and I was right, and they were wrong. And then I got under the gospel teaching, preaching, And God brought me to my knees and convicted me of my sin, and I begged him for mercy. It's what you do when you're convicted of your sins. I was under the just wrath of God. I knew it, but I was shown mercy. So as we close, let me just say, instead of arguing with God, confess your condition. This is what Tom does here. I think it's important for us to confess our sins and admit we're unworthy of mercy. That our nature is polluted, that there is no good in us that, there's been an infusion of evil and we need mercy as David said in Psalm 51.5 I was made in iniquity and in sin I was conceived I was sinful from the get-go Origen, one of the early church fathers who died in 254 A.D. calls confession the vomit of the soul whereby the conscience is eased of that burden which did lie upon it Thomas Watson said our nature is an abyss and seminary of all evil From whence come those scandals that infest the world? It is this depravity of nature which brings on God's judgment. The sins which come into our view and cognizance of which our hearts accuse us must be confessed as ever we hope for mercy. Do but draw up an indictment against yourself and plead guilty and you shall be sure of mercy. Augustine said confession of sin shuts the mouth of hell and opens the gate of paradise. And I think probably the most arrogant thing that any human could utter is, God, I think I've been good enough, so you need to let me in. God's going to let me into heaven because I've been good enough. Let me just remind you, God owes you nothing, and you owe him everything, and the only thing for you to do is to fall at his feet in worship, hush before him, stop your blabbering, and confess his holiness, and confess your own unrighteousness, and throw yourself on his mercy. The ultimate act of mercy is Jesus taking our sins on the cross and substituting his life for ours. Those are tender mercies. As Zechariah, the the father of John the Baptist, praised God with at his birth, that that it was because he was going to be the forerunner because of the tender mercies of God. You even take the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we'll close with this. Here's Jesus lauded as a king. Hosanna, save us and days later executed. Luke 19, uh, 41 through 44, Jesus comes into Jerusalem before the crucifixion and like Piper says, he cries tears of sovereign mercy over Jerusalem. He draws near and saw the city and wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. You did not know the time of your visitation. In the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the curse. That day, they took palm branches and went out to meet Jesus and cried out, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they quickly gave in to the murderous mob mentality. Jesus came to his own and they rejected him. John 1.12 says, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God born of the Spirit. So at the cross, God put infinite wrath upon his Son so that he might show us infinite mercy. It pleased him to crush him. Lord, thank you that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus knowingly walked into the jaws of suffering and death, chose to suffer, chose to die, participated intentionally in his execution, laid down his life, and took it up again. For all believers, Lord, I pray that we would rejoice today in your mercy through the blood of Christ that prevents us from suffering the just punishment of our sins. And for any unbeliever in earshot, may they run to and receive your mercy through the blood of Christ that will prevent them from suffering the just punishment of their sins. May we all trust Christ's finished work to be sufficient. Let me pray, pray in his name. Amen.